God, we uh, God, we come before you right now. I ask you for your grace, God. I ask you that you'd give us a spirit of revelation, and you'd give us a love for the truth. Lord, it's uh, God loving the truth is so difficult. And uh, Lord, it really only happens in a sustained way if you give us grace and you sustain us to do it. So God, we ask you open the eyes of our understanding tonight. God, speak to us. We ask you to send the Holy Spirit here with us. All right, so basically the, the aim of the class or the course here um, is we're going to... Uh, we're basically going to just go over the gospel again. Um, it's kind of a good portion of this came out of a time in my life personally about uh, about six years ago where I was um, teaching fairly regularly and and uh, just it just it's kind of a growing thing and then it uh, then it just hit me one day I said I can't teach anymore and uh, so I asked a friend of mine who was a part of the community, if he could uh, help do all the teaching things that I'd committed to do for the rest of the year. And I said, bro, I have to go find out what the gospel is. Like, if you were to corner me and uh, and ask me, what is the gospel, I, I, I would hum and ha for a little bit, and then that's not okay. So, um, so this largely comes out of that season, which uh, I'm, I'm kind of still in, but... Uh, but really, a lot of things got got really cemented for me during that time, and uh, so um, my aim uh, kind of twofold. Uh, one, I, I want I want us just to fall in love with the gospel again. I mean, it's uh, it's rare that you find anyone who who thinks the gospel is worth as much as the apostles did. And uh, and I and that was my prayer to the Lord. I said, I want to act like they acted, like it was that valuable. But I understand I can't put on a show. So I need to know what is the what what are we talking about? And um so that's what we're gonna work through tonight, uh next next six weeks. And um so to to start off the introduction, it 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 won't make complete sense on the front end, but it but it has to be said that uh, our difficulty to understand the gospel has to do with a the fact that we're Gentiles, like it or not, and uh, I mean whatever your particularly your particular theological slant at this point. Like it or not, the scriptures are a book written by Jews, for Jews, and to Jews, almost exclusively. And, uh, and so we, it, it's always going to be a struggle, but um, the, the, the issue is that they were appointed by God to share the gospel with us, but something's happened. And so we're going to talk a lot about that and how to process that along the way, but... Uh, so uh <clears throat> church in Rome largely has you know has a has a has a big Jewish and Gentile conflict problem going on. And in Romans 11 Paul gets to kind of the the real crux of the issue and and uh 
Uh, verse 20, he says, uh, Granted, referencing the Jews, they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand by faith. Don't be arrogant. Obviously, contrasting the Jew and Gentile, you guys stand by your faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and the sternness of God, sternness to those who fail, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And if they persist and if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted back in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these than natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. So what did he just say in verse 20? What happens if the Gentiles become arrogant? they also get cut off, right? You also will be cut off, verse 22. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles, cross out number, that's a really bad translation, just says the fullness of the Gentiles, and that's, kind of a cryptic phrase, and so people, you don't have to cross out number, but I, but the word number doesn't, doesn't, isn't in the text, it's uh, plerao or pleroma, and it just means the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, we'll talk about that uh, passage later on, um, but in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come to Zion, and he will turn godliness away from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. And so the issue of Gentile arrogance is if we don't understand the mystery of what's happened to them, then the result is Gentile arrogance, is what Paul called it. I don't want you to be conceited or arrogant, it says in other translations. And because the issue is that if you don't understand what happened to Israel and their hardening, then what are the conclusions we've come up with for 2,000 years? So Israel's expecting a, a, a government with the Messiah on a throne reigning over all the nations of the earth out of Mount Zion in Jerusalem, right? They're expecting, there's no question, everybody acknowledges what they're expecting. They're expecting the resurrection of the body, the restoration of the earth, and the apocalyptic day of the Lord. Right? Bringing God's judgment on the earth. All scholars acknowledge it. The issue is, why didn't it happen? And if you misunderstand their hardening, what do you conclude as a Gentile? They were wrong? Or it's been reinterpreted, right? It's, it's different stuff. What, what they thought was this is now another kind of thing. And uh, so, like, you had the same thing in uh, 2 Timothy. So, Paul's writing to Timothy, and, and it's the same bit. And he says, uh, avoid godless chatter, 
because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Hey guys, come on in. Got some notes right here. Yep, coffee in the back. Notes right here. Welcome. <clears throat> Just working through the introduction. So we're just working through uh, the introduction. Talked about the um, the issue of uh, Gentile arrogance and and what happens when, as Gentiles, we misunderstand what happened to Israel in the first century. When he says that in this way all Israel will be saved, what's he saying? That's a good point. So um, essentially, all is all Israel is going to be delivered, but. Um, it's a long story, but essentially Israel is going to go through a, a wilderness time, and uh, the result of it is just like their first wilderness time. Ezekiel 20 talks about, parallels the first exodus from Egypt. Here, I'll take one for Anne. First exodus from Egypt. There you go, man. First exodus from Egypt is uh, he takes them out to the wilderness where he kills off the rebels. And he only brings in a remnant. And uh, Ezekiel 20 says the same thing's going to happen at the end of the age. I'm going to bring them into the wilderness of the nations. But the ones that aren't cut off, they will be saved. Salvation is synonymous with the crushing of the enemies of Israel, resurrection of the body, and, uh, and the commencement of the kingdom. But we'll, we'll get there. Cause it... So all doesn't mean... The ones that aren't cut off. The ones that aren't cut off during that time. But it, it, we'll, we'll, we'll actually need to discuss a little bit more. But we will. We'll get to it during the class. So, you know, we talked about what happens when we, when we don't acknowledge properly the fact that they've been partially hardened. And, and so what results is we look at what was promised to them and we, and we reinterpret it. Right, because we assume, oh, this is this is a different kind of a thing. It's a it's a spiritualized resurrection inside the heart. It's a spiritualized kingdom, a spiritualized day of the Lord. And so, this is happening in large scale. Um, uh, late late part of the first century, this is happening a lot. Um, it was the it was kind of where Gnosticism really emerged during that time, which was kind of a blending of Platonism and Christianity, but we're going to spend a lot of time on that today. Uh, but Paul warned, warned uh, Timothy, avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread, spread like gangrene. And why does, why does it spread like gangrene? It's not just because of the damage, but that it spreads quickly and easily. Because Gentile arrogance also known as realized eschatology, it's what, you know, the, that's what a scholar would call it. Realized eschatology is appealing to the Gentile. We love it. It sounds spiritual. It sounds advanced and mature. said it will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hamanaeus and Philetus who have departed from the truth. In what way? They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. So, they, so they're telling people in the assembly in Ephesus, 
that the resurrection had already taken place, but people are still dying. Like, obviously, the resurrection of the body hasn't taken place. It's reinterpreted within a Gnostic framework. So Gnosticism, essentially, like Plato would... would uh, well, actually, we're going to get to that right now. So, uh, point two, biblical truth. Um, if, you're, if you're online, you should have the notes online uh, on, the, on the For Zion's Sake Missions website. Um, the historical nature of biblical truth. So, biblical truth is just like it was to the Jew. The message of the gospel, the message of the scriptures, you can fit it on a timeline. And, uh, and you ought to be able to fit it on a timeline. It's the only way it makes real sense to the human mind. And, uh, and being confined to space and time is not like this, you know, human thing that we have to transcend. This is the way God ordained it. I mean, God, God does not live outside of time, right? God, in the beginning, God created the heavens. The heavens have a beginning. And, and Psalm 110, come and sit at my right hand and wait until I make your amazing footstool. There's waiting. Time passes. Revelations 8, there was a span of time, about half an hour that passed. And so, God, God explains the message of the scriptures in context to a simple timeline. And it, and it should be, and if, and if you can't fit what you're hearing on a timeline, just question it. It's, it's very simple. God explains it in a manner that it doesn't take a, a, a Gnostified Gentile, you know, you know 2,000 years after Sinai, to understand what he's actually saying. Uh, so you have 2 Timothy 4. <clears throat> in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge, right, to Timothy, because it's the end of his life. Preach the word, Timothy. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Careful instruction. We're not talking about Oh, he, he didn't use the right Greek tense, and he's not dotting his I's and crossing his T's. We're talking about a sound instruction that holds up, and it's not full of tensions and dichotomies throughout the Scripture. Like Paul and Jesus are not schizophrenic. They're not, they don't have ADD. You know what I mean? They can write about a common theme through the entire book of Romans. And they're not jumping all over the place. And so he says, do it with careful instruction, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. <coughs> so this is what we're trying to work through. So we're top of page two, the Western worldview. This is where it gets a little bit like, whoa. Okay, this is the, this is the only section. It's going to be like three pages. Three pages where we're just going to be talking about history. The rest of the course isn't like this, but it's a necessary foundation to uh, just, just get a grid for what we're talking about so we can all use the language and, and talk about the same thing. You know what I mean? So, Western worldview, uh, Charles Kraft, uh, 
he gave this description. Uh, worldview is the culturally structured assumptions or values and commitments or allegiances that underlie a people's perception of reality and their responses to those perceptions. Said another way, uh, my friend Stephen Venable said, it's like, it's talking about issues of worldview isn't like walking up to Anne and going, Anne, your, your glasses are, they're brown. Like you really seeing everything weird. It's trying to convince Anne that she has glasses on. That's the difficulty of worldview. So we're going to talk about it, but it's, it's necessarily awkward, and so ask questions. The, oh, uh, regarding questions, uh, here, if you're in the room, feel free to uh, just raise your hand and uh, ask a question. Anytime anything comes up, we'll work through it. Um, again, this is going to be intellectually, this is the most challenging uh, session we're going to have, just the first half. The last, the last half of tonight will... Uh, will be a lot more edifying, I promise. <laughs> but, um, uh, so, it's like uh, 2 Corinthians 10, where Paul talked about dis demolishing strongholds. They're arguments that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. This is, Paul understood this was at war against the Corinthians receiving the gospel. So, into the history, about 300 years before the ministry of Jesus, um, a worldview, mostly devised by a small group of Greek philosophers, was formed. It's not the only worldview that has come out of you know the Greek world by any means, um, but it's uh, given its impact on Christianity. It, it's probably the most impactful. And uh, this worldview was primarily developed by two men, Socrates and Plato. If you ever you know if you had to go through classes where you read these guys. You're a little bit familiar, and uh, but uh, the bedrock of the well, we assume is you know Socrates was involved because Plato wrote about him, said that he was kind of. But the bedrock of this view is a form of metaphysical dualism. So metaphysical dualism is one of the only complicated words I'm going to use. So metaphysical dualism is all it means is it's a it. It makes a sharp distinction in existence, so in reality. Reality exists in two dramatically different realms. So you have this realm, then you have another otherworldly realm. It's immaterial and it's timeless. And it's, um, and it, he, called, he called this one the perceptual realm and the other the intelligible realm. And uh, the first realm is the intelligible realm where the, all, all the ideals existed. Uh, all ideals, he also called it the realm of ideals. Because everything there, it's assumed in this realm, is assumed to be unfallen and uncorrupted. Because essentially what corrupts is materiality falls apart. And that which is not eternal and it's subject to change because it's anything subject to change is automatically corrupted only things that are totally static and unmovable are can be pure right i mean so we can see where he's coming from so that's basically the idea the other one is the is the uh the material realm and the material realm is called the perceptual realm and that's just everything you perceive and so, the, how you separate the two, 
is obviously what you can perceive is one. And everything that's not perceivable is uh, all existence outside what you can perceive as part of this other realm. And uh, then the idea of copies came where things that you see here are a picture of a perfect copy in the intelligible realm. So there's a, there's a perfect blue water bottle like Ruthann's somewhere in the intelligible realm. And this is a corrupt copy. And so there you have your diagrams. And he explained existence this way. Um, so you have the intelligible realm, which is transcendent, immaterial, timeless, eternal, static, and unchanging. Contrasted with the perceptual realm, which is material and physical, finite and measurable, dynamic and changing. It's a sharp distinction. There's no overlap. And, uh, and so things began when the ideals, the, the whatever, the good, the demiurge, he created through a series of bizarre emanations. He indirectly created this, this realm and, uh, and all of its corrupt copies. Okay, any, any questions about that? We're not going to stick on that long. It's just kind of dumb to talk about, but it's kind of necessary just to get where we're going. So, so that's the worldview. Now you get to page three, and this is the historical development of the Western worldview. And the historical development, um, basically, is the history we're going to get to. The Alfred Whitehead infamously said that the safest char general characterization of the European philosophical tradition—that's where we all came from—is that it consists as a series of footnotes to Plato. So this is this is where all, all and and you can't and you can't escape the fact that the Western philosophical tradition, um, for the last several hundred years, grew in tandem with Christianity. And there was you know there's a lot of contrasts and things like this, but they but they generally acknowledge a similar playing field, not the same because it's generally a uh, uh, naturalist playing field. But we'll talk about that. So. These guys, Socrates and Plato, like they were influential where they were at, but we probably wouldn't even know their names if it weren't for what happened shortly after their life or uh, through their influence. So um, Plato's chief, arguably chief pupil, Aristotle, um, in turn, he had a pupil himself uh, named Alexander, and Alexander bought what was being sold by these guys and uh, he set out from Macedonia to uh, basically conquer the earth with um, military might but it wasn't it wasn't as it had been done before because his aim was to not destroy the the existing cultures but to force upon them uh, Greek culture and Greek philosophical understanding, because it was, it was assumed that this really is what's going to lead to the fulfillment of humanity. It's going to lead to the end of wars. This is going to lead to, to what we're all looking for, because that was Plato's deal and, Alex, and Aristotle's too, is that they weren't just sitting around talking about, I think this is what, they're like, no, 
So we have to view this so that we can understand how to make society to be an ideal place. And so he sets out and um, uh, first city that he established, or uh, the, one of the first cities, first large city was Alexandria in Egypt. And Alexandria really becomes the hub of, of, uh, of scholasticism back then. So it is the scholastic hub of the of the world. It has the you know the largest library in the world, and um, and so after the time of Jesus, this is still a, a, a really big hot spot. So Clement and Origen come on the scene, and Clement founds a school. It's taken over by Origen, and it's a school. And the the point of the school is to because at this point the diaspora has happened. You know, and there's already, you know, from, you know, several hundred years before the time of Jesus, there's synagogues all over the place. There's a, there's a Jewish presence everywhere. Now there's a lot of Christians in Alexandria, too. And, um, and so these things had been talked about there for a long time. But so they start a school, and the aim of the school is to assimilate. And it's stated. It's not just like revisionist. It's... Their aim is to assimilate Greek philosophy with the message of Christianity. And this was a popular thing to do at the time because they viewed themselves as really coming into modernity at that point and they were, they were uncomfortable with things like Homer's classics, you know, the Odyssey and, and the Iliad. So they, would, so they would actually form schools of thought that would allegorize Homer's classics to make them more palatable. Oh, it's not really about this and that violent sort of thing. It's really about, it's a principle that's talking about this that we can apply to our lives and this and that. So this is a common thing that's happening there. And so they want to make archaic Christianity palatable. And so this is the, this is the school that they started there, and it's become infamous. Um... So this is, a, this is a statement of Clement of Alexandria. And he says, Accordingly, before the advent of the Lord, philosophy was necessary to the Greeks for righteousness. Philosophy was righteousness to the Greeks. And now it becomes conducive to piety. Being, so, uh, so he's, you know, uh, uh, you know, a hundred years after... This is a hundred years after the Apostle John writes the book of Revelation, right? So it's pretty late. Uh, being a kind of preparatory training to those who attain to faith through demonstration. For thy foot, it is said, will not stumble if you refer what is good, whether belonging to the Greeks or to us, to providence. For God is the cause of all good things but of some primarily as of the Old and the New Testament, and of others by consequence as philosophy. Perchance too philosophy was given to the Greeks directly and primarily till the Lord should call the Greeks, for this was a schoolmaster to bring the Hellenic mind as the law, the Hebrews, to Christ. Philosophy therefore was a preparation, paving the way for him who is perfected in Christ. So this is their view. So this is why they taught them in tandem. So it, it becomes the first, uh, their, their, their main claim to fame, I don't, I don't know if it's fame, but their infamous become, this is, this is the origin of 
allegory applied to the Christian scriptures. So just like the Stoics were doing to uh, the, the, the sacred Greek texts and the novels, they were doing the same thing and they were teaching it in their school that you do it this way and this is how you get over the offensive language, particularly of the Old Testament, and any hint of the New Testament referring to that offensive language, the offensive subject matter. So, uh, at top of page 4, uh, paragraph F, Swift's theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar, uh, he stated, there is no thinker in the church who is so invisibly all-present as origin. Uh, David Noel Freeman, Anchor Bible Dictionary, says, Origen's influence was immense. Through them and others, various church fathers after the Nicene Council primarily, Origen became the father of scriptural study and systematic theology in the Christian tradition. He became the father of scriptural study. So just like uh, Plato, Origen... Now, in his lifetime, he produced 6,000 works on his own. But, um, and he, but, but there, was, uh, there was always a lot of contention with his view because it was early enough. There was, still a little, there was still somewhat of a, if not Jewish leadership, those who still remembered the Jewish leadership of the church. And, uh, well, like, uh, like him... It, it seems, if you look back at history, that his, his place was really um, made more prominent due to the influence of a guy who was really, uh, I think, I, I would argue, really, really influenced by him. Um, and there's a great book here that it's, uh, it's free online. It's in footnote 7. But it's, uh, it's, the best, it's the best argument I've found for uh, a real conclusive connection between the most influential theologian in church history and Origen. And it says Augustine or Augustine. And uh, so their, their connection, you can trace it in a number of ways. But basically, Augustine makes Origen orthodox. This is basically kind of what happens. Um, without, without, you know, it, it's because Augustine was a Gnostic for, for nine years prior to converting. And he only left Gnosticism because of a dispute with one of the Gnostic bishops, not because of disagreement. And uh, so that's another story. Um, not trying to completely just rail on Augustine, but but... The fact is, is, I mean, it's clear where he came from. Uh, so the next stage that really cemented our, our foundational understanding of life within a Platonic worldview was the Renaissance. So the Renaissance were essentially just after the fall of the Ottoman Empire, um, or I'm sorry, Constantinople's fall, the rise of the Ottoman Empire, um, the mid-15th century, um, Greek lecturers and thinkers like John Agariopoulos, fled from Constantinople, and they took a bunch of the old sacred texts. And so the Renaissance was largely a rebirth of Greek philosophy as basically to dictate the way we do things and uh, as, as the way, as a framework for understanding life. And then a uh, couple of centuries later, disillusionment and cynicism gripped Europe after the devastating effect 
the devastation left by the Thirty Years' War. So that is a war largely, it was initiated by a battle between Protestants and Catholics um, early on in the, in the Reformation. And um, it escalated to include every major empire in Europe and just left the, all of Europe pretty much decimated. And um, so it ushered in the, the, the contempt for organized religion and for the Catholic and Protestant churches that came out of there is, it was really what led to the Enlightenment movement, which was a, which was a, and they were, uh, they advocated reason as the primary source and legitimacy for authority versus the divine right that the Catholic Church would hold over people. And, and so, you know, they basically, they're convinced that they're ushering Europe into, and the world, into an enlightened age where they're going to eradicate their problems. And so, um, they viewed it as part of the, I mean, this, this culminates with, you know, it culminates with Darwin and Darwinism. Because it's, Darwin had, had Darwin wasn't just like, hey, things don't really seem like it says in the Bible. Darwin had an agenda to discredit divine authority claims by the church. And so Darwin's, Darwin's point, along with his contemporaries, well, there's letters, there's, uh, you know, back and forth. They said, how do we undermine divine right, the claim by the Catholic Church that they can send this guy to hell and this guy to heaven? And the conclusion was, we have to undermine the scriptures. And how do you undermine the scriptures? You undermine the flood. And this was, that, was their, that was their beginning point. But it was largely because they were trying to liberate humanity from the clutches of tyranny by Catholic leadership. Uh, the most fundamental concept of the Enlightenment were faith in nature and belief in human progress. Uh, accordingly, both human righteousness and happiness required freedom from needless restraints, such as many of those imposed by the state or by the church. The Enlightenment's uncompromising hostility towards organized religion and established monarchy reflected a disdain for the past and an inclination to favor utopian reform schemes. Most of its thinkers believed passionately in human progress through education. They thought society would become perfect if people were free to use their reason. And that's obviously, this is kind of what modern civilization is built on. So, uh, we'll just finish with this and then we'll have a break. Uh, top of page 5. This created a scenario of contention in which the proponents for a supernatural worldview. So, look in the footnote. The term supernatural comes from a medieval Latin term, supernaturalis, supra, above, naturalis, nature, meaning that which is above or not subject to nature. So, it was developed in the early 16th century. The word or anything that which could be used as... Uh, Greek or Hebrew equivalent is completely absent from the scriptures. So I, I realize in the charismatic movement it's assumed supernaturalism equals the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And that's just... So let's just say if Paul and the apostles didn't need supernaturalism as a way to explain the Holy Spirit, neither do we. You know, it doesn't mean that we are getting rid of whatever. 
the work of the Holy Spirit at all. The work of the Holy Spirit is essential. We're going to spend good time talking about that. But supernatural as a, as a framework comes so from this contention. So what, what you have is then you have the Enlightenment thinkers. And I'm oversimplifying human history, you know, <laughs> for this entire first period. But so what happens is the Enlightenment thinkers begin to side with Plato's pupil, right? Because Aristotle agreed with, with Plato in a lot of areas, but where he disagreed, he said, I don't know about this stuff. Like he goes, I don't think that there's these ideal forms. I think that all the forms exist within the objects themselves. So the ideals are actually within this realm. And so this created, this was kind of like the, the birth of naturalism. All that exists is that which we see. All that's perceptual. So there's nothing beyond what we can perceive with the senses, right? So that's, this is the fundamental argument of naturalism, of atheism, of, of all of these. And, uh, well, and so around that time, the church developed supernaturalism as a framework to argue against naturalism. But it's not the right framework. So essentially you have the Enlightenment leaders saying, we believe Aristotle, and the church is going, no, no, Plato was really right. Essentially, this is how the argument gets framed. And so there has to be, an, and so it's viewed that legitimacy of the scripture demands a supernatural framework where God exists outside of his creation, and he's in a completely immaterial place that is timeless and static, just like Plato said. So this is what we assume upon the scriptures when we come to it, and when we come to God. And so, uh, so we're going to take a break, and then we're just going to come, and the whole second half, like I promised, is going to be much more edifying. It's just going through the scriptures. What does the scripture say about existence?